Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and this week I wanted to dive a bit into snake bites and envenomation, and this really got prompted by a reader calling in and saying, well, emailing in and saying this is a topic they wanted to hear about. Now, I have no formal training in toxicology. I'm in New York. We don't have a lot of snake bites, so I have no experience with this. So I'm phoning a friend. I've got Dr. Megan Spires on, and Megan did her residency at NYU Bellevue and then tox training down in Arizona. She's currently faculty at LA County USC, and so Megan's got a ton of experience with snake bites, and so she's going to give us the expert's take. Megan, welcome to Corey M. Thanks, Swami. Great to be back with you. All right, so Megan, let's dive in here a little bit. There are a number of families of snakes, but for the purposes of EM and toxicology, we typically focus on the elapids and the vipers, since these are the families that have poisonous members. Now, let's see how my board prep serves me. I am studying for my research pretty soon. Elapids tend to produce a neurotoxin and vipers tend to produce a hemotoxin. Do I got that right? That's definitely right for the boards. Um, you've pretty much got it there. Uh, one other thing to add, though, is that vipers, in addition to the hemotoxicity, they definitely produce um, direct tissue toxicity as well. All right. Well, now I have exhausted the breadth and depth of my knowledge on the topic. I know nothing else about snakes. It's all going to be on you. I'm going to throw some questions at you, and we'll move on and see if we can get this this group of issues kind of under our belt so we're comfortable with it. So we're going to focus on the viper group. Again, this is what mainly is going to be happening in the United States. So what are the major types of snakes within the family that we're going to be concerned about in the emergency department? Yeah, so in the U.S., you're right, it's really our native New World vipers. Um, those are the crotalids. We also call them the pit vipers. And that's including the cottonmouths, copperheads, and rattlesnakes. All of those really have similar toxicity, but the presentation with rattlesnakes tend to be more severe. And do remember, we do have uh, non-native exotic envenomations in the U.S. That would typically be from someone uh, presenting from a zoo or maybe a herpetologic society or from people who own exotic pets. And the management for those will be pretty different. So let's say you've got a patient that comes in stating they were bit by a rattlesnake and they know it's a rattlesnake because either they have some education about snakes or it was their own snake or they were at the zoo and they said, hey, that was a rattlesnake that bit you. So tell me what goes through your mind initially in management. Initially, um, really what's going on in my mind is trying to determine if it's a true envenomation or a dry bite. And to do that, I really use the physical exam and laboratory findings. So right away, I'm ordering some labs, and that's usually a CBC, a PT, and a fibrinogen. So you're looking for thrombocytopenia and coagulopathy. And abnormalities in any of these labs will signify a true envenomation, and that's pretty much independent of the physical exam. Another lab you might want to grab is a CK. Some of the snakes can cause significant rhabdo. Certainly the ones we see out here in Southern California can do that. The other thing you're looking for initially is any signs of systemic envenomation or allergic reaction. Those are both pretty rare, but they can be life-threatening and certainly would require immediate attention. So you're looking for hypotension, shock, um, GI symptoms like vomiting or diarrhea can be early warning signs for systemic envenomation as well. What signs and symptoms am I going to be keyed in on looking for that patients are going to exhibit letting me know that they had some envenomation and not a dry bite? So just as a little bit of background, about three quarters or 75% are going to have a, a true envenomation uh, when you're talking about rattlesnakes. So in addition to those lab findings, you're also looking at the physical exam. You can't really use puncture marks because those can be really variable, ranging from just a scratch to the classic two puncture marks that might be using. And those happen you know, independent of whether it's a true envenomation or a dry bite. But what you're really looking for is swelling and erythema. 
you can have a little bit of localized swelling and erythema just from the bite itself. But once it extends beyond the bite site, typically we describe that as extending beyond one major joint. And that's really applicable if it's a hand or a foot. So if it, the swelling and erythema extend beyond the wrist or the ankle, we're typically going typically to call those uh, true envenomations. The other thing you're looking for is pain and tenderness. If a patient has significant pain, again, I'm going to probably treat that as a, as a true envenomation regardless of any other findings. And if you're not sure, the, like the presentation is maybe subtle and the labs are normal, one of the things I usually do is to uh, palpate the lymph nodes. So the axilla for the upper extremity and the groin for the lower extremity. And that's because venom travels up the lymphatics. And so tenderness there can signify a true envenomation. So Megan, we're always assuming worst first. So if someone comes in, they've been bitten by a rattlesnake, start by assuming they have an envenomation, and then you can work back and say, maybe it was a dry bite. But most patients have a true envenomation, so we're going to assume that first. And then I like that lymph node tip. So if they've got any kind of lymphadenopathy, we're going to assume that that is a true envenomation. Now, if the patient is asymptomatic after a bite, how long do I need to observe them for to make sure they won't develop any symptoms? So classically for more tox things, we usually say a four to six hour observation time is, is what we recommend. But for snake bites, it's really longer. We recommend eight to 12 hours before you can truly call it a dry bite. And we go on the longer end of that for leg bites. And that's because in that larger area of the leg, the swelling can be more subtle. Additionally, for pediatric leg bites, our practice in Phoenix was to admit all of those for overnight observation. And again, that's because the swelling can be a little bit more subtle in the legs. And children, especially the younger ones, might not be able to verbalize the pain that they're experiencing that might be getting worse. Let's say our patient has symptoms. Their hand or their forearm is swollen. It goes up over the elbow. There's some redness. There's a considerable amount of pain. Walk me through the initial general management for that patient. So once I've determined that a patient has a true envenomation from a rattlesnake, the first thing I actually do is put the order in for antivenom. And that's because it can take pharmacy a little bit of time to prepare it, particularly if you're in a place that doesn't see a lot of these. And the very next thing I'm going to do is elevate and immobilize the extremity. And this is to prevent pooling of venom in dependent areas. So if you have the elbow or the knee bent, for example, you're going to end up with a lot of pooling of venom there and a lot of direct tissue toxicity, like increased uh, erythema, certainly bruising, bulla, blisters. And the way I do this is I actually make a posterior slab splint because it can be difficult for the patient to keep their arm or leg straight. And so you make a splint that goes beyond, um, it goes distal to the wrist and then proximal to the elbow for the upper extremity. And you do want to extend it proximal to the knee for the lower extremity. Then you're going to wrap it loosely. You definitely don't want it too tight because you certainly don't want to uh, prevent lymphatic flow. We want all of that venom to go more uh, central so that it causes less direct tissue damage. And then you can use some of that splinting material to hang the arm up from an IV pole. Uh, and then as far as the leg goes, you can just make a ramp to keep the lower extremity elevated. Now, Megan, I just want to come in for a second. When you talk about immobilizing and attaching into the splint, the arm is going to be horizontal to the ground. It's going to be kind of parallel. Or are you actually hanging this up so that the fingers are up in the air? Yeah, great question. You're hanging it so the fingers are up in the air. So you really want the arm, like the patient's trying to you know, hail a taxi or something like that, all the way up so that the venom comes more centrally. So the other big thing I'm looking at is pain control. These guys are going to be in a ton of pain and typically require IV opioids. Personally, I like to go for fentanyl up front because there's less histamine reaction. So I have less issues with confusing you know, a morphine-induced histamine reaction with an allergic reaction to the antivenom. Once you've got the patient stabilized, you've given a few doses of antivenom and everything's settled, you certainly can use longer acting opioids like morphine or dilaudid. And you mentioned antivenom a couple of times, but I've also heard it called antivenin. So which one is it? Is it antivenin or antivenom? So despite what Microsoft Word autocorrect will tell you, it's definitely antivenom here in the U.S. 
Okay, good. So anti-venom is what we're going to be using. And when are we going to be giving this? Is every patient who has an envenomation, do they all need anti-venom or are there patients who don't need to have it? We recommend antivenom whenever you think the patient has a true envenomation. So again, that's either the local tissue toxicity or the hematologic toxicity, so thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy. And either of those findings would be an indication for antivenom. Additionally, if the patient has systemic findings, so if they have you know, hypotension, shock, vomiting, diarrhea, in addition to the supportive care, you're definitely going to give antivenom for that. If they have an envenomation, they are going to get antivenom. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, let's go back a step and let's talk a little bit about the antivenom itself. Why are we giving it? What does it exactly do? And what is the antivenom? So right now, the only antivenom available for rattlesnakes is Crofab, and that's an FAB fragment antibody, and it acts by binding venom. So Crofab helps to reverse venom-induced hematologic toxicity, so it resolves the thrombocytopenia and coagulopathy, and additionally, it helps prevent progression of the tissue toxicity. Definitely, it's important to understand that Crofab doesn't reverse any tissue toxicity that's already occurred, but it does help to prevent progression, and it does reverse that hematologic toxicity. And again, it helps to resolve systemic effects as well. All right. So Megan, why don't I just make this easy and say, if they got bit by a snake, I'm just going to go ahead and give them antivenom. I'm not going to worry about whether this was a dry bite or whether there was a true envenomation. I'm just going to give it to everyone. What's the big deal? You know, there are allergic reactions that can occur. Um, Crofab is made uh, using sheep and papaya. So an allergy to either of those would, would be an issue. Really, the, the allergic reactions was, were much more common with the previous antivenom, and that's why it's a whole IgG and really caused a lot of uh, allergic reactions. You'd have to ha hang epi at the bedside, for example. It's really not as much of an issue with Crofab that we have now. The main issue with Crofab is cost. So the wholesale, the antivenom, each vial costs around $2,000. And the ultimate cost of the patient certainly can be much higher. And it's not unusual for patients to require more than 10 vials of antivenom. Okay, so we're going to try to carefully select the patients who have a dry bite, exclude them from getting antivenom. Everyone else is going to get it. Now that we've decided the patient has a true envenomation and we're going to give antivenom, how do we do it? So the initial dose that we recommend is a bolus of four to six vials. Typically, I recommend going for the full six vials in most cases, as long as you think it's a true envenomation. The nurses are going to want to start the infusion slowly just to make sure that there's no reaction that's going to occur. But within 10 minutes or so, they can increase the rate and they should get the whole dose in within about an hour. About an hour after the antivenom has gone in, you want to reassess the patient. Uh, we do this using, you know, we repeat the labs, but we also use some measurements to assess the progression or resolution of the swelling. There's um, certain ways that people do this. Some people just measure the leading edge of swelling. I find that to be a little subjective. And so what I was taught in Phoenix during my fellowship is to do circumferential measurements in three different places. So if it's on the upper extremity, you might do a measurement in the hand, the forearm, and then the proximal arm. And you just use a soft measuring tape and you mark it so you can measure the same place each time. When you repeat your assessment, if you have persistent hematologic toxicity, again, either the thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy, or you have progression of the swelling, you're going to give additional bolus doses of antivenom. And you keep repeating that process until, until the envenomation is what we call controlled. And so that's resolution of the hematologic toxicity and cessation of progression of the swelling. Once the envenomation is controlled, most places use maintenance dosing of antivenom, but that's a little bit beyond the scope of, of what you should have to be doing in the ED. And obviously, you know, we didn't mention this, but if you are going forward with getting antivenom, you're going to get on the phone and get your toxicology consultant on board so they can help to guide the management. And definitely for the inpatient team, once this patient's admitted, they need to have a consulting toxicologist to guide that continued management as well. 
hundred percent. I'd actually say, you know, the first things you do are order the antivenom and place the consult to the toxicologist. Megan, let's go back to our unfortunate rattlesnake handler from before. You do his blood work. He's got low platelets. He's got an elevated PT. He's got swelling of his hand across the wrist and up the forearm. And you consult your local tox center. They agree that antivenom should be administered. Aside from the hematologic effects of the venom that we discussed, what are the other complications? Some of these things you mentioned, but what should we be looking out for that would also guide us to either add something or give more antivenom or be more concerned about the patient? Sure. So we definitely, we talked about systemic envenomation or systemic effects of the envenomation, like the GI symptoms or hypotension. And that definitely makes you more concerned. I'd even sometimes dose those higher, like up to 10 vials at a time uh, for systemic effects of envenomation. So that makes you concerned. Other complications or things you look for are local tissue necrosis, rhabdomyolysis, and compartment syndrome. Specifically with regard to compartment syndrome, that's something that's very, very rare in a rattlesnake envenomation. But the thing is that these guys really look like compartment syndrome. They've got tense, swollen, exquisitely painful extremities. Sometimes you can't even palpate the pulses because of the swelling. They have significant pain just on, you know, passive movement. So if you do suspect that, you definitely want to elevate the limb and give antivenom first. And then if it's something you're really concerned about, definitely get your toxicologist involved because we see a lot of this and go ahead and measure the compartment pressures. If you just consult a surgeon, they're going to do what surgeons are trained to do and take them to the OR and open it up. If the patient doesn't have a true compartment syndrome, which again is going to be the more common scenario, opening up that extremity is going to impair their healing. They're going to have more morbidity associated with that envenomation. Lastly, another complication is that some rattlesnakes can cause neurotoxicity. I don't want to confuse you too much because we definitely think of the lapids as the neurotoxic snakes and the vipers as the hematologic or tissue toxic toxic snakes. But particularly the Mojave rattlesnakes and then some of them that we have here in Southern California can cause some fasciculations or myokymia, which is kind of a worm-like movement under the skin. And so that's the neurotoxicity that they manifest. You usually don't see, you know, full-on respiratory paralysis like you might with an elapid, but this can be a little bit uncomfortable and painful for the patients. The main things we're going to be looking for aside from the local toxicity is obviously systemic toxicity, which may require a little bit more of the antivenom to be given, and that is a life-threatening scenario, so you want to be aggressive about management. And then these patients who look like compartment syndrome because of all the swelling, but we want to make sure that we are not over-diagnosing compartment syndrome in these patients. I would get your surgeon involved, but let them know. Sometimes snake bites look like compartment syndromes and they're not. So let's make sure that we measure a compartment pressure before we go and open that fascia. My guess is that surgeons in places that have lots of rattlesnake bites or lots of snake bites, they know this already. They're savvy. They don't want to open a compartment unless they have to. So they probably are saying the same thing like, yeah, yeah, let's check the compartment pressure first before we jump ahead and go to the operating room. Now, Megan, we've kind of gone through a lot here, but let's talk about some pitfalls. What are some common things that you see that are done that are unnecessary or potentially harmful? Believe it or not, I'd say the biggest pitfall is failing to properly immobilize the extremity. It seems it seems super simple, but um, sometimes patients don't want to do it or or people forget. And that's, you know, rattlesnakes really have very low mortality here in the U.S., but the morbidity is pretty significant. And really getting that extremity immobilized and elevated can significantly reduce that. The other thing I would say is mistaking erythema for infection and giving antibiotics. So it's pretty rare for rattlesnake bites to get infected. The only ones I've seen have been associated with using like extraction kits or sucking at the bite, both of which we definitely do not recommend. So prophylactic antibiotics are definitely not recommended. And the other thing I'd say is just what we talked about compartment syndrome. You know, make sure if you're suspecting it, 
even if it is a true compartment syndrome, antivenom may help alone. Um, so just like you said, if you're getting your surgeons involved, make sure you've got a toxicologist involved as well. And perhaps we can talk to them and help go through it together. Well, there you have it. That is a lot about rattlesnakes and snake bites in general. And this really applies to the U.S. and it applies to native U.S. snakes. So it doesn't apply to the exotics and it doesn't really apply to other countries that have snakes that live there because they're going to have different toxic patterns. They have different snakes. So this is not a podcast that you can take to Australia and apply the exact same lessons. This is really for U.S. native snakes. So we just want to make sure that disclaimer is there and people understand that. Now, before we go, Megan, would you mind hitting us with a couple of your big take-home points, things you have to know about snake bites in the U.S.? Sure. Remember, rattlesnake envenomations cause hematologic and direct tissue toxicity. When you have a rattlesnake bite patient, make sure you don't forget to elevate and immobilize the extremity. And then lastly, don't declare someone as a dry bite unless they've been observed for at least 8 to 12 hours. So you can check out more from Megan on Twitter, where her handle is at mbspires, that's S-P-Y-R-E-S, and at USC Med Talks. And hopefully we'll get Megan back on Coriem to address some of these other toxicologic topics. That's all for the Coriem podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coriem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week. Hey.